To our Father, we come with thankful hearts for all that we receive from your mighty hand day by day, moment by moment. Lord, we know that Jesus Christ is the sustainer of our very being and that in God we, we live and move and have our being. And Lord, we pray that today we will be made even more aware of the fact that each and every day we're dependent upon the grace of God, not only for ultimate salvation, but for our, our very physical existence here, and that we cannot survive and live without God living in our hearts and in our lives. And Father, we're so grateful for the Word and the background that it gives us and uh, information sometimes that we aren't even sure how it all relates together in the uh, framework of history and geography, and yet you've given it here for our admonition and for our instruction. And so we accept that from you today and pray that you will be our teacher and our strengthener. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to read Genesis chapter 10, beginning at verse 6. Genesis chapter 10, beginning at verse 6. And the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, Canaan. And the sons of Cush were Seba, Havala, Sabta, Reama, Sabteka. And the sons of Reama were Sheba and Dedan. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod, and he became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like a mighty hunter, Nim, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. And from that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth, Ir, and Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. And Mizraim became the father of Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, and Pathrusim, and Kasluhim, which became, which came, from which came the Philistines and the Kaphtarim. <laughs> we'll stop there. <laughs> now, I hope you've been inspired. <laughs> it's probably not a passage of Scripture that if you were having a formal service, you would use as the Scripture of the day, unless there was going to be a lesson on it. But as I said before, every passage of Scripture is given to us by the, by the Spirit of God through inspiration. And it's here for our instruction. And I'm not saying today that we're going to be fully instructed in terms of every detail here because there's a lot that's not known about these people. We have to think, though, for a moment, we're talking about living, breathing people who are as conscious of their existence and whose lives were as important to them and to God as ours are today. There are those who, who refer to history as something that's dry as dust. I trust that's not anybody's feeling here today because that's like saying that, you know, human existence is of no worth. Because history is the story of men and women that have lived and have walked this planet just as you and I do today. And it's exciting. It's vital. It's, it's what makes life what it ought to be for us. One of the illustrations I use in my uh, 
usually the first or second day in my world history class, is to, to make a cone and to illustrate the fact that you and I are sort of like at the pinnacle of the cone. And as you go down that cone, you move further and further back into time. And you and I could not be at that pinnacle of that cone if it were not for the rest of the cone. In other words, all those people that have lived before us have enabled us to be what we are today, to be where we are today, to have what we have today. You know, what's the old uh, statement? Uh, no man is an island. And that's very true. No person is an island. Nobody is here on his or own or, or her own. We're here because of those who have been before us. And so as we look at these people here today, we have to realize that even though the names are strange to us, these are important people. And there are people who played a major role in the development of the human civilization as we find it today. In all of this particular record, the names mentioned refer often to the patriarch and then to the people who came from that particular patriarch. And as you notice, as we read through this, no detail really is given except of one. And that, of course, was the person Nimrod. And we'll look at him uh, in, as, in terms of the detail here in a few moments. Without a doubt, it seems that the sons of Ham can be identified as follows. First of all, we have Cush. Now, that's a name that was perpetuated long, long through history. In fact, uh, one of the great kingdoms of uh, northeastern Africa was the kingdom of Cush, only often usually spelled with a K, but it's, this is the root of it. And uh, so directly is the, direct is the association here that uh, often the term Cush in the scripture is just simply translated Ethiopia. They don't even bother putting Cush in because uh, the uh, term Cush refers to Ethiopia and probably a large part of what is today Sudan, the country of Sudan. You probably know as you look at North Africa, there's a region across Africa called the Sudan, but there's also called a country called Sudan, one of the largest geographically in all of Africa. And so that whole area there, from the upper reaches of what's called the Blue Nile uh, down to where the uh, river, the Blue and White Niles merge at Khartoum in northern Sudan, that whole area is probably what is referred to here and even beyond that uh, as you go further down the course of the Nile. And at one time it was a great kingdom and a wealthy kingdom. In fact, uh, one of the most important early ancient sources of gold was in Kush. In fact, Egypt was a major controller of gold in the ancient world, and that was one of the uh, uh, sources of its greatness. And the mines that were in what are often is called Nubia, Cush, uh, were under Egyptian control uh, through much of ancient history. Secondly, we have the, the uh, son named Mizraim. Now, actually, Mizraim is plural. All the I-M endings in Hebrew, or most of them at least, uh, indicate a plural. And uh, whether his name was actually Mizraim or, you know, his name was the non-plural of that, it's hard to tell. But uh, this is directly correlated with Egypt. And we know this through uh, history and, of course, through the way it's translated in Scripture from Hebrew into other languages. And Put uh, was Libya. Not the Libya of today, of course. 
And then Canaan, we know uh, what land was named for him and what peoples came from the son Canaan. And we'll be looking at that in more detail as we move into the latter part of the, well, the next section in the chapter where a lot of information is given about people, again, whose names sound strange to us, but they were so important to the Israelites because they bumped up against these people and these people were the influences for evil in their lives often. And we can think of these as physical entities, people that were uh, enemies of Israel, but what does the scripture say in Ephesians? We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Uh, and so even though often the enemy of Israel was the Hivite or, or, or you know, the Arvidite or whatever it is in terms of a physical uh, people, the power behind them was the same power that we face today, and that is Satan and his minions. And so we, we can always, you know, often translate this across. And we can say, okay, we may be talking about Canaanites as far as Israel is concerned, but you and I have our Canaanites, which we face. And uh, sometimes it comes to us in a, in a form of a human being or maybe the company you work for or whatever, you know, becomes the Canaanite in your life. But uh, the struggle is the same and the, the basic force, the power behind it is the same. Now, Ham is the father of these individuals, and where Ham actually lived, we don't know, but there is uh, some evidence here that he may have lived in Egypt. In other words, with his son Mizraim and, and the descendants there. Uh, and the reason for that is that Egypt is often referred to as the land of Ham. Let me just turn to one passage in Psalms 105 to, to note that. Psalm 105, verse 23. And, and of course, if you, if you know uh, something about uh, Hebrew poetry, you know the parallelism, especially in the psalm, shows up. You have the statement in the first line, and then the second line often restates it, but uses different words. And so we have, Israel also came to Egypt. Thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. Now those two lines are saying the exact same thing, but just giving a little bit more information here. So we're told here in this passage that Egypt and the land of Ham are synonymous. Now Mizraim, or the people that came from the people of Mizraim, were of course only one of the line from Ham, and yet Egypt is identified specifically as the land of Ham. And it's very possible that Ham spent much of his uh, life there. And that wouldn't be strange when you think about it because Egypt was one of the early cradles of civilization. And, and in fact, it was for a long time thought to be the most ancient cradle of civilization there in the valley of the Nile. And when you look at it and you study it, you discover why. Uh, there's so many things that were perfect there. You had a river that flew, flowed through the desert and brought life-giving water to the desert there of Egypt. You have almost cloudless skies year-round in much of Egypt, so your growing season is extremely long. I mean, there are places in Egypt where without application of uh, unnatural things, you know, like artificial fertilizers and all this kind of stuff, they can double crop and sometimes triple crop there, uh, used to be able to in Egypt. Now, of course, Egypt faces a different situation today because they've dammed the Nile and built the great, you know, high Aswan Dam. 
they don't have the flooding downstream, and of course the fields do not have that constant rejuvenation they used to receive. But that was a, a, a place, it seemed, of, of perfection to live because you have the river which tied the land together. And what's interesting about this is travel on the Nile River was relatively easy for sailboats because the river flowed from south to north, and it still does, flows from south to north, but the winds prevail from north to south. So you can float down the river and sail up the river which is a little unusual, but makes for a, a wonderful transportation system in the ancient world. Even today, the term Hamitic is used when referring to the ancient languages of Egypt and Ethiopia, Libya, and that area, and is even used by modern linguists for the root language behind many of the languages today in Northeast Africa, or much of North Africa even. For example, the Berber, one of the, the, the many Berber tongues are Hamitic. They're classified as Hamitic. And when you think about it, the major language stocks being Hamitic and, and Semitic and Indo-European and so forth, there are others, but those are the three major ones and it fits very well with Shem, Ham, and Japheth in terms of uh, origins. Now according to uh, Ethiopian history, Ethiopia was a populated originally from Arabia. This is according to their own tradi traditions. The emperor of Ethiopia, before he was overthrown, remember Haile Selassie? He was the last of that line of, Ethi of, of Ethiopian emperors that had gone on for millennia. Do you remember what his title was besides being emperor of Ethiopia? Anybody remember what his title was? Right, the Lion of Judah. You think about that. What? <laughs> the Lion of Judah. Now why was he called the Lion of Judah? What's the tradition behind that? Sheba. Right, the Queen of Sheba. Remember the story? The Queen of Sheba uh, came up to visit Solomon in Jerusalem. And according to Ethiopian tradition, not according to the scripture, uh, she became pregnant by Solomon, and when she went back to her land, she gave birth to a son, and that son became the ancestor of the Ethiopian rulers. That's their tradition. Now, the scripture does not validate that, but that's, that's a, a many thousand year old tradition for Ethiopia. And uh, so you, you, you see these interesting links together. Now, in the passage we read in Genesis 10, the names of six of the sons of Cush are given in verses 7 and 8, and all of those names are associated with the Arabian Peninsula. Now, we know something about the Arabian Peninsula now that we knew, didn't know before, maybe, huh? Because it was in the news so much a year or so ago. Rayama's son, sons, Sheba and Dedan, were specifically associated with Yemen, which is way down in the south uh, west corner of the Arabian Peninsula, and Dedan, way up in the north, close to Israeli territory. And there are numerous references made to these regions in Scripture. And in the ancient days, there were major caravan routes which went between Yemen and the Northern Arabian Peninsula, and they're scattered out. And so 
Sheba and Dedan, Sheba and Dedan, Sheba and Dedan were very commonly associated with the major entrepot, the, the major uh, caravansary, if you will, the cities at the two ends of this Arabian uh, route from which goods were scattered then into other parts of the world. Now in those days, uh, they sailed, of course, along the sea coast. They sailed back and forth up the Red Sea and along the Arabian coast and into the Persian Gulf. But often they would transport over land just as well as transport over sea because the sea routes were a little bit more dangerous than the land routes. The land routes you could pretty well count on your caravan getting through. The sea routes you never knew but what a storm would destroy your fleet and you'd lose all your goods. So even though land routes sometimes just parallel the seashore, you'd say, what's this silly? Why should you send all these goods by camel and have all that trouble? We just stick it on ships and sail up the coast. It'd be so much easier. But it wasn't easier. And often it was more dangerous. And so we have these long caravan routes, which in some cases are still in use today. Now these early Arabians, the descendants of Rayama would later be either destroyed or absorbed by the descendants of Ishmael. And of course, as you know, most of the Arabs today consider themselves to be the descendants of Ishmael. Now, who was Ishmael? Son of Abraham, right? By whom? Hagar the Egyptian. Hagar the Egyptian. The Arabs today revere Abraham as much as do the Jews. He's as much their father as he is considered to be the father of the Jews. And the Arabs consider Abraham so important that the most holy shrine of Islam today, the Kaaba, which is in the center of Mecca, is considered to have been the house of Abraham. Now, there's no evidence that Abraham was ever in Mecca. But nevertheless, their tradition says that he was. And he is extremely important to them. It's really a brother, you know, internecine warfare that goes on between the children of Isaac and Jacob and the children of Is Ishmael. Now, let's look for a few moments at this man, Nimrod. Let's look at the verses again, verse 8 of Genesis 10. Now, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And from that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth, Ir and Kala, and Rezin and Nineveh, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city, Nimrod. Nimrod must have been a man of tremendous stature in the ancient world. First of all, we're told that he became a mighty one. The Hebrew here implies that he was a warrior, a tyrant. Now, the, the word tyrant originally didn't mean the, necessarily the evil that we associate it, 
associate with it today. It just simply meant one who ruled relatively uh, single-handedly. But generally, down through time, we've noted that anybody who rules with great power tends to become corrupt, right? We've all heard it repeated so many times, haven't we? Lord Acton's little uh, axiom that, uh, how does it go now? I've forgotten. He who rules, no, no, no. Yeah, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> My mind isn't totally here today. Not that it's anywhere else. <laughs> it's like a more modern axiom, <laughs> axiom that we hear today, you know, the light's on but nobody's home, you know. <clears throat> Apparently, uh, this man ruled with, with great power and authority and probably ruled through military force. That seems to be the implication here. I mean, this, this passage is not telling us that here was this guy running around in a, in, in a deerskin shooting deers with his bow and arrow, and, and that's why he's referred to here. No, I mean, we're talking about a man. We're talking about a Hitler, if you will, of the ancient world. Uh, you know, probably a Hitler and a Stalin and a Mao Zedong and all this wrapped up into one in terms of this man's power and his influence. The passage tells us that his name became a byword. That's why it says, as we read it there, uh, therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Why would that statement be made unless that was not something that was being broadcast and published throughout the ancient world and everybody thought, like Nimrod. Art from ancient Mesopotamia often depicts the hunt. And very frequently, they depict the royal hunt. And the royal hunt shows a, quite often a Syrian or some other great king out trying to kill a lion with his bow and his arrow or possibly with his spear. The lion hunt was the big hunt in, in that part of the world in those days and was often depicted in carvings or paintings on the wall of the palaces of the ancient Mesopotamian world. Now, Nimrod's ability as a hunter doesn't just mean the guy was good at bringing home the bacon, so to speak, but that he was a great protector. Not only a great provider, but a great protector. Now, I'm not saying this just to uh, uh, try to say that, uh, you know, this guy was you know, somebody a little bit out of the ordinary. Think about it for a minute. If this man is considered to be the great provider and the great protector, in whose place is, be, is he being put? Who is our great provider and who is our great protector? The Lord, as we well know. And as soon as we get our eyes off the Lord as our provider and as our protector, and we turn to human flesh, we, of course, have been perverted from the truth and become followers of the lie, the great lie. The commentator Kyle believed that by implication he was a hunter of men, not just of animals, meaning that by strategy and force he built an army and became a great tyrant in bringing all these people under his authority. He was an emperor, if you will. Now, as we read this passage, it almost sounds like he might have been a good guy, a mighty hunter before the Lord. 
What's the Lord got to do with this? Well, if you've studied this passage at all, you know probably that the Hebrew here implies that it means he was a mighty hunter against the Lord or literally in the face of the Lord. Now, we have a modern phrase, don't we say? We say, in your face. I hope we don't really say that to anybody. <laughs> but that's really not a, uh, that's not a very polite thing to say, and, and usually, it, you know, it's a, it's a statement of, uh, uh, you know, anger or, or some other such thing. And that's what's implied here. Like Nimrod is saying to God, in your face, you know. That's the meaning of it here. It's not saying that before the Lord he functioned and did these things and he honored the Lord. No, in fact, he was rejecting the Lord. He was in opposition to the Lord. He was definitely a descendant of Cain, if you will, as far as this passage is implying. In fact, the root word for the name Nimrod means we will revolt. Rebel, if you will. So Nimrod, in effect, you could say, means rebel. Now, who's he rebelling against? The Almighty. And as you look at the names of those cities, if you know your ancient history, you know that these cities were great centers of idolatry, of the worship of pagan gods. We have our gods today in the world that we see, and the United States is full of gods and goddesses too, and most of them are not flesh and blood. Some of them are. I just can't believe sometimes the way people go ape over, that's a modern expression, of course, fairly modern. <laughs> over, over some of these rock stars, for example. You know, that's a form of idolatry. My, always thought, my thought about the whole thing was, if you're going to worship somebody, worship somebody worthwhile. <laughs> I mean, these are wimps in most cases that they're, that they're, I mean, Nimrod could have taken on all these rock stars and made a hash out of them, probably single-handedly. Single <laughs> yeah, right. The land of Shinar is mentioned in this passage, and this refers specifically to Lower Mesopotamia, a land which is later known as Sumer, or probably in the day we're talking about, known as Sumer, and then later would be called Babylonia. And that's the way we know it more uh, commonly as Babylonia because that was the land that would be so influential in uh, Hebrew, Hebrew history. First Old Babylon and then Neo-Babylon. And of course, all of us have that favorite Babylonian king whose name was Nebuchadnezzar. But he, of course, came much later than the time we're talking about. But Nebuchadnezzar was sort of cut out of the same mold that Nimrod was from. And, of course, we have a modern Nimrod over there today, don't we? And uh, even though he considers himself, I think, Nebuchadnezzar III or something like that, we're told that he founded cities. One of the cities was Babel, which we know became the city of Babylon. Erech, which was a great city of the Sumerian world, a center of, of great commerce and of worship of pagan gods. Akkad, which was the capital of one of the earliest empires in that part of the world, a city which 
which historians know exists from many sources, and yet they have to, to this day yet to find Akkad, the great capital of this empire. And then Kalna. Archaeologists are particularly familiar with, of course, Babylon and Erech as sites in which they dig and which much has, information has been gleaned. These cities, we're told, were the beginning, however, of this man's kingdom. He just started there. He started down in southern Mesopotamia, and then he moved north. He took his armies with him to the north, and he began to establish his power in what later becomes Assyria. And so what do we have here? I think we have record of the first empire in the history of the human race. The first tyrant in the sense of a man who ruled over many. The first Napoleon, if you will, in history here in this man Nimrod. And he would come from the mold from which almost all emperors have come from down through history. You study the lives of these great emperors and you discover a very, very few of them were people who, of, of magnanimous personality. Almost all of them were egomaniacs of the first rank. Maybe you study the life of Napoleon, for example, and you discover a man who was so enamored of himself that it's incredible. And, and you know that such an, an individual is not powered by God, right? Even though he, he outwardly gave credit to God and considered himself a, quote, Christian, he was long ways from one. And I think Nimrod was a direct spiritual ancestor to men such as Napoleon. He went forth into Assyria. <coughs> now, Assyria is up in the northern part of Iraq today. It's a, it's a flat land. It's a land that's crossed by the Tigris River, goes through the center of it or, and to the east of it. And probably with a great army, he went up there, conquered that area, and established these cities, which we read about in that particular passage. He went forth into Assyria and he built Nineveh and Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin. What's wrong with that? They were prolific. <laughs> Obviously, we're not talking about populations as large as we have today. You know, obviously. But these people really were prolific. And uh, we have in the record here in Genesis, I believe, only a partial statement of all the people who were born. Because as I mentioned in earlier classes, we go down through the list and we have a statement of these sons and then we talk about the grandsons of maybe two out of seven sons. Well, we know that those other sons certainly must have had many children too, but they weren't important as far as the biblical record was concerned. And so, you know, we're probably only talking about thousands, not hundreds of thousands or millions yet in terms of population but we're in the ancestral period to this. And, of course, we don't yet know how long these people lived or how long after the flood, even though we're only maybe a couple, three generations afterwards, we don't know how many years that is. And humans can reproduce pretty quickly. So, no, we're not talking about vast populations like we are today. But still, he built cities. Nineveh would become a much greater city later, and so would Babylon. But uh, cities of significance, even so. 
Two of the cities are unknown. Rezin and Rehoboth are not known. They're not mentioned in Scripture later, and they're not known to the archaeologists today in terms of sites. But, of course, Nineveh is mentioned many times in Scripture and known to be the great capital of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And then prior to that, Kala had been a great city. And what's interesting today is that the archaeologists who have dug at Kala know that the people there who live in that area of Iraq and have for generations referred to that site as Nimrod. That's the name they have given to the site of the city of Kala. And archaeologists often refer to it as Nimrod rather than Kala. Interesting when you think about that, how that name and that tradition should be carried on. Now, Nimrod. Nimrod became the, the figure around which numerous semi or possibly totally legendary divine warrior kings, considered divine, warrior kings would come into the tradition of the Middle Eastern peoples. Warrior builders of cities. There are almost every people over there has a, a, a sort of this legendary figure that is sort of patterned after Nimrod. In reference to the building of the Tower of Babel, Josephus has the following to say about Nimrod. He says, Now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God, a bold man of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe their happiness to God as if it were by his means that they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government to tyranny, seeing that no other way of turning men from the fear of God but to bring them into a constant dependence upon his, that is Nimrod's, power. He also said he would be revenged on God if God should have a mind to drown the world again, for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach. In other words, the Tower of Babel, in, in the perception of Josephus, was the brainchild of Nimrod, that he was the one who inspired the construction of this. Well, you know, what, what are Josephus's sources? Hard to know. Uh, you know, Scripture doesn't say directly uh, that Nimrod inspired the construction of the Tower of Babel. But certainly his attitude was a Tower of, the, of Babel attitude, and that's what's so important to us, not the actual physical structure of that particular tower. What we have here in the man Nimrod is humanism run amok. Some of us think humanism is, is sort of a modern phenomenon, simply because the term itself was, was brought into existence in the 19th century. But, but humanism, and, and of course the term humanities, goes way back before that, even into Renaissance and pre-Renaissance times. But humanism is an old, old concept, whatever it was called. To be made in the image of God 
is, of course, not to be God. Lucifer got caught in that foolish thinking. And when we studied the Garden of Eden passages, you remember we talked about what it says in both Isaiah and Ezekiel about Lucifer. And we're told that he exalted himself to become like God. He wanted to be co-equal with God. He wanted to be co-ruler of the universe with his creator. And that was the source of his downfall. His pride, his arrogance, res resulted in his being cast out of heaven. And pride continues, even today, into your heart and my heart to be a major stumbling block for our walk. I mean a major stumbling block. Often we do not yield to God on an issue or we do not respond to the voice of the Holy Spirit because our pride says, what will people think? If I stand, if I raise my hand in public, or if I make some kind of a public confession, or if I change my lifestyle radically, what will people think? It's our pride, which stands right up there and says, we're important and we need to be thought well of. It's a Nimrod attitude that we struggle with all of our lives. Some people come to a place of overcoming that in the power of the Lord better than others. Some, it seems, although they may have been Christians for half a century, struggle with it to their very... Well, everybody struggles with it, but some don't seem to be as victorious over it, to, right on to their deathbed as others. Now, when you think about it, compared to the rest of the creatures on this planet, we really are godlike. I mean, we can think, and we can reason, and we can consider God in His works. We can fly to, to the moon. And we can send a rocket ship out of our solar system. I mean, these are really godlike attributes. If the other animals could even know that or consider it, they would have to say, oh, you guys are godlike. But then what do we do? We compare ourselves to God. And where do we stand? Romans 3.23, the passage all of us, I'm sure, learned very early in our Christian walk. We, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in that isn't an understatement. Huh. I mean, we have fallen show, so short of the glory of God, we're not even on the scale. You know, the scale might be 100 miles high, and we don't even register on that scale. God is so much greater than we are. And yet inside us, often there is the Nimrod who says, I'm important. People, consider me. Nimrod, I think, is a powerful example to us of the passage that we know so well, of the statements made in the passage we know well in Mark. Let's, let's turn for a moment to Mark chapter, chapter 8. Mark 8, 36 and 37. Well, let, let's back up and include 35. Well, let's take 34. <laughs> and he summoned the multitude with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life, that means for himself, 
to use it for himself as Nimrod did. I lost my place. <laughs> uh, shall lose it. Yeah, whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, that doesn't mean necessarily dies in the physical sense, but dies in the sense of giving his life over to God. And the Gospels shall save it. For what does it profit a man or a woman, obviously, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I think Nimrod is one of the most powerful examples in all Scripture a man who sold his soul to the devil, if you will. A man who exchanged his eternity for a fleeting moment of power and glory on planet Earth. We all remember the temptation of Satan who took Jesus up on a hilltop and said, look, and, and he ran before him, sort of video style, I suppose, before Jesus' eyes, uh, a picture of all the kingdoms of the world, and he said, these are yours to rule if you will but fall down and worship me. He was giving to him the temptation that went before Nimrod, and of course Nimrod yielded, that he might rule, that he might have this, this be able to exercise his own personal power and, his per and achieve personal glory for himself. If you or I were even able to live to be 100, and some people do. I, I was reading someplace in some magazine, there are tens of thousands of people in America today alone who are over 100 years old. But, but say we should live to be 100 years. What is that compared to eternity? We, we tend to be so short-sighted. You know, uh, we all remember, we don't remember being a baby, but we remember babies. <laughs> Many of us uh, have raised them. And, uh, you know, all the baby really is concerned about is his immediate comfort. I want to be fed, I want to be dry, I want to go to sleep, whatever it is. And, and the thought is not for, well, let's see, I better not create a fuss now because later on I'm going to want this or that, you know. <laughs> what, what baby thinks that way, you know? And unfortunately, we grew up to be teenagers often, and we still think that way, you know. <laughs> and even as adults, no, no foresight at all. And, and you and I are tempted every day to not think down the line that what we do is going to be reflected in eternity. As the song says, to keep eternity's values in view. We often don't do that. And, and we just respond to the immediate desire you know, the immediate stimulus, whatever it happens to be, regardless of, of what that might mean for eternity, and to realize that everything we think and everything we say and everything we do is going to have its impact in eternity. Scripture teaches that all these things, you know, are, we're responsible for them. The, the walls here are words, so to speak, if you will. God knows and what, what is it if we were to gain our little kingdom? It might be just a little kingdom. But what good is it if we lose our own souls for eternity? I mean, I wouldn't trade my place to be a modern Nimrod for anything. I'd rather die today than be a Nimrod and rule the world for 100 years if I knew that in the end it would be eternal damnation. And I think even though Nimrod didn't have the scriptures as we do in his hands, 
God is faithful. God is just. And, and Nimrod would know sometime during his life that there is a God to whom he is responsible. Today, so much of the philosophy that is taught in our schools is not taught because it's true, but is taught because people don't want to believe the alternative. And that is that they're responsible to a living God who expects us to respond in a moral way. And, and you know, they don't want to hear about, quote, abstinence in public schools. They want to just hear about safe sex because they don't believe that controlling yourself is possible. And for, of course, most who don't know the Lord, that's probably true. But God expects us as Christians to be responsible, to be disciplined, and to bow our knees to Jesus Christ here and now and every day. But don't we often have the little Nimrod who stands up inside? And we, well, that comes on, you know, just all of a sudden sometimes, doesn't it? Somebody says something or does something and boom! <laughs> Nimrod says, don't let them do that. After all, you're important. <laughs> uh, <coughs> our lives, the scripture says, are but a vapor. Like a flower that comes up in the early morning hours and in the afternoon, it's dead because of the afternoon heat. So why are we so con concerned about those few hours of glory and power and pride when we face and eternity. We don't have to be as flamboyant and audacious as, as, as Nimrod was. We, in our own quiet, secret way, can reject God and be just as condemned by God as was Nimrod. It's sad when you think about it, but that little old, sweet little old lady or kind little old man who lives on the corner and lets the young boy mow his lawn and pays him a little extra and does things that seem to be quite nice. And yet as in his or her heart rejected God is just as condemned in terms of eternity as is Hitler or Nimrod or any of the others. Because it doesn't boil down to what seems to our eyes to be the externalities of one's life, but it's the hard attitude towards God. That's what makes the difference in eternity. And there's no way that you or I can be good enough. Well, as we read in this passage, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Will Nimrod stand before God and say, Oh, Lord, I'm going to give to you Assyria and Babylon. Aren't you happy? No because God owns the whole universe. He doesn't need anything that we can give him. And when Nimrod died, he was gone from the scene. And his name was carried on, yes, in a byword, but his power was gone. His rejection of God was eternal. Verses 13 and 14 of this Genesis 10 passage deal with the descendants of Mizraim. Now, all of these names are actually in the plural. 
So uh, probably when, when you read this, it should be read like this. And the Mizraim, and Mizraim became the father of the Ludim, the Anamim, the Lehabim, the Naphtalim, and so forth. Because it's a plural, these are all plural names, which seem to indicate we're talking about not individuals, but peoples that came from the patriarch and for whom the, people, the peoples were named for, for that patriarch. These were tribal groups, apparently, who spread out across North Africa and into the Mediterranean world. It would be just fascinating, and obviously it's probably not important since God hasn't made it real possible for us to do this. But just think how fascinating it would be if you could trace these people into the modern populations. You know, in America today, we've probably got representatives of blood descendants from all of these peoples. But there's never been a, a, a nation that's been such a hodgepodge of individuals from all over the world as this nation is today. And I don't know how many different nationalities are represented in this room today, but I bet you there's a few dozen. And if you could just kind of trace back, it would just be, you know, it'd be interesting. Wouldn't change anything, but it'd be interesting. Little is known about most of these tribes. The Ludim, some feel, may have spawned the Berber people. Now, the Berbers, tough group, tough people who live in North Africa. They've lived there for eons. And the Berber people were extremely resistant to the Arabs. When the Arabs came in there with their, their Islam, the Berbers were the first people to really slow them down because the Berbers were very pagan and they didn't want to change and worship Allah. And uh, the Arabs found the Berbers tough, tough dudes to fight. But ultimately, the Arabs overwhelmed them simply because they were more, more numerous. And the Ber Berbers were eventually forced to convert to Islam. And then they became so, so vehement in their Islamic faith that they almost overwhelmed Europe. They came across the Strait of Gibraltar and poured into Spain to become the Moors of Spain. And then they poured over the Pyrenees into France. And if it weren't for the, uh, the armies of the Franks, on the battlefield at Tours under Charles the Hammer, Charles Martel, who stopped them. You and I might all be bowing to Mecca five times a day or whatever today. Obviously, God had a different plan. But the Anamim and the Lehabim are thought possibly to the, be ancestors of the ancient Libyans, the peoples of lower Egypt, are thought possibly to have been the descendants of the Naphtuhim and those of Upper Egypt, of the Pathrusim, because Upper Egypt is often referred to even in Scripture as Pathros. The only one identified in this Scripture specifically so that we can tell is, is the term Kasluhim, which it says were the ancestors of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were very, very important to the Hebrews, and so this, this clear identification was made. The Kaphtuhim are thought to have inhabited Crete, or possibly also Cilicia over on Asia Minor. Now, the Kasluhim and the Kaftorhim were closely related. You don't have to turn to it. I'll just read this uh, passage in Amos, chapter 9, verse 7, where it says, Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me? 
O sons of Israel, declares the Lord. Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kir? Kaftor. Hmm. The Philistines? Well, we've already got the Philistines associated here, and, and then they're also associated with the island of Kaftor. So it seems the Kasluhim and the Kaftorhim were sort of interrelated. These, these people are mentioned a few other places in scriptures, but obviously the ultimate importance of them begins to fade as, as time passes and as scripture faces specifically or focuses specifically on the Hebrews and the Canaanites and, and that relationship that would develop down through time. Now, the gods of these people would be the gods that would be the temptation, temptations brought to the Hebrews. And God said very specifically to the Hebrew people that they were not to worship the gods of these pagan people because God knew how that would be tempting to them to do so. And we know how it happened over and over again. You read the book of Judges and you think, boy, these people were yo-yo people. They worship God and then they fall away and God sends a judge and he saves them and then they fall away and I mean, you know, but when we're honest, we say, boy, that's a lot like the way my life has been in the past, you know, kind of like a yo-yo in terms of our worship of the Lord. And so these are here for an example, an example to us. Now, next week, we're going to focus particularly on the Canaanites. And they are very, very important to the people of Israel. And the gods that they worshipped were to be the most profoundly influential upon the Hebrews. And so as we do that, we're going to see, I think, a little of the battle that you and I face even every day. Because again, it's not flesh and blood. It's not that stone idol. It's the spiritual force behind that stone idol. The same one we face today. Demons don't die. And the demons who, who tempted Nimrod and, and empowered him are the same demons that live in the world today and endeavor to pull us down, to destroy God's church and to keep us free, be, from being effective for him. And I think it's important that we keep that in mind.